You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, with me, your host, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books. Well, it's been a week or two. I've not been well, that's why there was no episode last week. I was pretty sick, I've been getting migraines. I was so unwell that it got to the point that I had a panic attack at work. Now, I'm usually very good at, you know, containing that and I have pretty good coping mechanisms. I manage my condition pretty well because I have ADHD and anxiety and as such, I'm usually fairly good at keeping myself on an even keel, especially in a work environment. Unfortunately, everything just came to a head. Nothing quite says employee of the month quite like being cradled by your boss on the storeroom floor. My boss is amazing, by the way. She's she's cool. And obviously because, you know, anxiety, ADHD, so on and so forth, I automatically think of the worst case scenario. So I'm like, oh no, they're going to think I'm a fucking idiot that I... You know, I can't handle stuff and that I'm not going to be able to have the responsibilities, so on and so forth. You know, but like, it's fine. So things were really bad for me. My anxiety has been kicking my ass for a week or two. And so there was just no, there was no episode last week. That being said, I was checking my reviews today because I'm always asking everyone to like rate and review five star on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and when you like write a review on Apple Podcasts, it really pushes that podcast or that episode like up the algorithm. I don't know why. It's just what Apple does. So I was doing that. I actually cried. I'm so full of emotions and stuff right now. I actually cried because I'm like so full of emotion right now. And like not like a bad cry. Like it was very cathartic. It was like a release cry. And it made me feel really, really good. And, and up until like this afternoon, I wasn't gonna, I was just gonna be recording an apology instead of an episode because I didn't know I was gonna be fit for it. And I was like, you know what? No, these have been amazing. I've had a bit of a vent. Got all my notes here. I'm just gonna power through. I'm just gonna power through. Also, I seem to have talked quite a bit, so this is actually gonna be a two-parter, but I'm gonna try and get them released, like, basically one after the other as soon as possible, but there's just, like, a lot going on. Okay. Furthermore, I made my favourite joke I have 
ever made in my life. And it is so niche. It's it's peak millennial. Um, especially peak millennial anyone who follows British politics, you know. I was watching the Jubilee and there's Boris, the pre- current Prime Minister of England, who is a fucking buffoon who lands in shit and somehow always comes out smelling of roses. And he's going into like the, the cathedral and he's being booed. So I made this joke. Boris is going in, he turns to his wife. Are they booing me? Oh no, they're saying Boo-ris. Boo-ris. Which is based on The Simpsons, where Mr. Burns is being booed and Smithers goes, they're saying Boo-erns. Boo-erns. So I made the joke. I did it on Twitter and nobody paid attention. And I'd put it on TikTok and then people responded. And then some people responded with um, Hans Molman, sort of. I was saying Boo-ris. <laughs> it just tickled me so much. I'm so proud. I laughed at it. I thought I was really funny. I know I've technically just stolen someone else's joke, but it made me chortle so much and it was so perfect that I just, I'm so, (laughs) I'm laughing now. (laughs) But anyway, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, quit your jibber jabber and fact me. In fact you, I will. But first, we've got to get our source on. So, our sources are... Lizzie Borden and the Trail of the Century by Sarah Miller The Trail of Lizzie Borden by Cara Robertson Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, The Final Chapter by Arnold R. Brown We also have our favourites, History.com, Smithsonian.com and one of my new favourite things, LizzieAndrewBorden.com Are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. So I know that a lot of my... American and Canadian followers will probably know this rhyme, or at least the first verse of it. As far as I can tell, not many people know of the second verse. Like, I didn't even know about the one, first one until like a few years ago, but it goes as such. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. This is basically one of those, I want to call it a skipping rope rhyme. Like, you you do the skip and on the beat and you jump in. Um, Anyway, the second verse goes, Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the first verse is just punchier. I think all in all it kind of encompasses the whole story. And we don't really need a second verse. But it exists. And I wanted to share that with you. And before I get into, like the nitty-gritty of this case. When I was doing research and I was like in and out of forums and stuff as well, just to get a wee sort of idea of what everyone's perception of the case was, because that's fascinating to me, seeing if there was any like newspaper clippings or bits and pieces that hadn't been put anywhere else, it's always a good place to go. What I noticed is that people who are like super into the Lizzie Borden case are very similar to like Reparologists and people who are super into H.H. Holmes. Like, it's a very similar vibe. You know, people have an opinion, it is their opinion, and they are very direct with it. There's no swaying for them, regardless how much evidence is, is provided to the alternative. And, you know, you've got your people who are like pro, some are anti, and then you've got the conspiracy theorists who are always fun, but sometimes stress inducing. And The way people obsess over the Lizzie Borden case, I hadn't actually seen, except for the Ripper slayings. 
the Whitechapel martyrs. Like, I really haven't seen as much sort of fervor for anything. And there's conspiracy theorists and there's other theories flying about the place. So there's like a load of theories just swirling around about who could have done it, why they did it, so on and so forth. And they are uh, interesting to fucking mental. And they go from like silly to interesting to absolutely bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. But we'll get into that at the end. But you know, I, I did struggle with like, do I tell the murder first and then tell the background? Or do it linear? And I did decide just to go chronological as much as possible because fuck it. Let's just do it. Okay. Because this is the story of Lizzie Borden, it makes sense to start with Lizzie. And so we shall. Lizzie Andrew Borden. That's right. Her middle name was Andrew. <sighs> Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on the 19th of July, 1860, in Fall River, Massachusetts, to Andrew Jackson Borden and his wife, Sarah Anthony Borden. Lizzie was the youngest of three children the Bordens would have together. So I'm going to assume that a woman having her father's name as her middle name was very common in this time, or maybe some kind of family tradition, because Sarah's dad was Anthony, Anthony Morse, and obviously Lizzie's dad was Andrew Jackson Borden. Now, Sarah and Andrew, they had been married a couple of years, and they were, they were fairly well on when they started having kids. So their oldest, Emma Lenora Borden, she's born in 1851. And four years later, Sarah gives birth to Alice Esther Borden. So Alice, tragically, she passes away at one and a half. On what was referred to as dropsy of the brain. Effectively, there was fluid buildup in her brain, uh, hydrocephalus. And if it's untreated, it's, it's fatal. Unfortunately for Alice, that was the case. Two years after Alice's passing, Lizzie Andrew Borden is born. So by the time Lizzie is born, her older sister Emma is nine. And when Emma's 11 and Lizzie is just shy of her third birthday, their mother, Sarah, passes away from uterine congestion and spinal disease. Now, I'm not a doctor by any stretch of the imagination, but I did a wee bit of research because I've seen uterine congestion show up in, like, quite a number of female deaths. And as far as I can figure out, it's kind of like having varicose veins, but in your pelvis. It's really fucking painful. It's excruciating. And it was actually a more common condition in premenopausal women than it was in women who'd gone through the menopause. Which is what it is in modern terms. But uterine congestion was used as this blanket term back in the day for like a bunch of different stuffs just down there in the lady area. And Sarah's uterine congestion could have been anything from a miscarriage to degenerative scoliosis to even syphilis or some other uh, aggressive STI. Now, anything else about her condition, I actually couldn't find information on. Like, at all. Now, being a woman in the past, we don't really have that much information on Sarah, on their biological mom. We don't have that info. Because why would we? Why would we have it? Nah. I mean, there are two things that we can say about Sarah Anthony Borden. One is that she died of relatively natural causes. And two, that on her deathbed, she charged her daughter Emma with looking after baby Lizzie. And Emma must have been like 11-ish about this time. So Emma being, well, the lady of the house, effectively, she took it upon herself to be the mother figure for Lizzie. 
So I guess it's time to talk about Andrew Borden. So Andrew Jackson Borden, he was effectively a self-made man. So even though his family were descendants of sort of higher classes and sort of native Yankees of the area, not native peoples of the area because that would be indigenous people and they certainly were not those. But he came from high stock, good stock, good stock. That being said, he didn't actually grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. I mean, he'd be lucky to have a spoon at all, really. He did not grow up in a financially stable environment. Let's just put it that way. So Andrew, he's got a head for business and Falls River, it is very much an industrial textile town. So he starts off with this furniture company, which does pretty well. And he also has a casket company. That's right, coffins, caskets, because in fairness, it's a business that's never going to go out of business until such times as we find a more convenient way to dispose of human remains. I mean, you're always going to have customers. So these do really well and he makes money from that. So then he's like investing in real estate, he's buying properties, he ends up owning like textile mills, becomes the president of Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Sale Deposit and Trust Company. And so whenever he earned like so much money from businesses, he was able to invest that straight away into new things. Like the man always had access to cash. Like he was never in debt. He never owed anybody anything. So like he would be able to pay for things up front. There was no credit needed. He, it was just there. He always had access to cold hard cash. And you know, you may be thinking, oh, that's a really smart businessman. You know, that's really good. That's thinking smart. Well, Andrew here, he was frugal to the point of tomfuckery. He didn't believe in frivolity and excess spending, right? Spending for leisure just wasn't a thing for him. Like, I get that some people love to work and they're obsessed with finances, but um, it's always good to like live a little too, maybe, a wee bit. Home comforts, some might say. But like, throughout his entire life, Andrew just doesn't stop working. We don't really have um, much information about him apart from the fact that he was maybe a bit weird. He is, like, one of the wealthier people in Falls River. Like, he's not the wealthiest, he's not the richest person there. But he is one of them. And he has, like, the right, and he has the cough, cough, right ancestry, cough. He doesn't really involve himself in, like, what someone of his status should be. Now... Remember when I said frugal to the point of Tom fuckery? Well, his house didn't have gas. So, like, gas lights didn't have that throughout the house. And it's a weird fucking house. I'm going to talk about this house in a minute. It's a weird fucking house. Before I do, let's add another character who may or may not be one of the actual nicer people in this story. And that is Abby Durfee Gray. So she marries Andrew Jackson Borden three years after Sarah dies. And at this point, Abby is, like, effectively an old maid. She's in her 30s at this point. But Andrew and Abby, they don't have any kids together throughout their entire marriage. Now, it could be that Abby had already gone through the menopause. Perhaps she was sterile. Perhaps, I don't know, something happened to Andrew's sperm count. Who's to say? Maybe they just didn't have sex. Or, I don't know, maybe Abby knew her way around a condom. I don't know. Cassandra's a fairly practical man. It's been suggested more than once that their marriage was a marriage of convenience. 
So Andrew felt like he needed like a wife, someone to like run the household and be the mother to his children. And Abby, Abby really needed security, really. So her family, they were always kind of circling the rim of debt. Like they were always struggling financially. And Abby, as I said, was like an old maid at this point. She was seen as not viable match for a lot of people. So it actually makes sense. It's like a pretty good deal for the both of them. She gets, you know, safety, security, somewhere to live. And he gets, you know, a replacement wife. Huzzah! So what's funny to me as well is like, we don't know how well they knew each other beforehand or how long they'd been courting or whatever. Like, Andrew was fairly well known in Falls River. He was... Like, he owned businesses. He was directors of, like, banks and trusts and shit. So you, you know of this man and you marry into that. And then you don't have a pot to piss in. Like, it's it's so weird. A member of high society, or you should be. So you marry in. And then you move into this cold, dark, dank, depressing, weird, weird house. Like, that's gonna be a, um... It's gonna be something, right? So they get married and from the get-go, like because Lizzie's so small, for most of her life she does refer to Abby as mother. Like, that's what she called her. It's not so much that she thought that she was her mother. Like it was always made very clear to her that Abby was her stepmother. Now whether this was because they were trying to like be an honest household or if this was because Emma very much played the mothering role and, you know, wasn't going to let anybody take that away from her, maybe, who's to say, or whether they wanted to ensure that she knew who her biological mother was, or because Emma, she was, like, really involved in this mothering role, that she really saw herself as mother to Lizzie as opposed to sister, and Abby was there just to kind of do the other stuff, the sort of running of the household, so on and so forth. Now, this house (sighs) this house is fucking weird man so it's three stories the top story is like the maid's quarters and the you know the the top floor so i think it's called the second story in america and then the first floor because like in sort of europe the first floor is the first floor off of the ground so you'd have ground floor first floor second floor but anyway the very top floor that was the maid's quarters and the middle floor was where the bedrooms were. So you had the master bedroom, Abby's dressing room, the guest room, Lizzie's room, Emma's room. Now the weird thing about this is there's no hallway upstairs. Like, I don't know if he was trying to save money on hallway space or whatever, but like all the rooms kind of lead into each other, which is, I don't know, I find that really creepy and weird that someone can just walk into your room from their room. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there were, like, a front and a back staircase. So, like, one staircase led up to the master bedroom, and the other staircase led up to, like, Emma and Lizzie's rooms. So, effectively, if you wanted to, you could quite easily avoid the, f- you know, somebody if they stayed in the opposite side of the of the floor to you, if you managed to lock a door. Downstairs, it was, like, the kitchen and living area, and then there was a basement, and the basement was where the the flushing toilet was. Now the flushing toilet is the only piece of like plumbing in that house. Like that's it. So there wasn't water, access to water, there was no washroom upstairs or anything like that. You just had a loo. Which you know is better than an outhouse, 
or a hole in the ground or a latrine pit. But still, like most people who were of their social class at the time, they had running water in their house. They had gas heating and gas lighting. The Bordens did not. Like he didn't see the point in wasting money on it because apparently light, heat and cleanliness are too expensive. What? Andrew, now, come on. Now, Andrew also didn't like spending money on leisurely things. So they're staying in this cold, weird fucking house down by the river. They're close at the bottom of the hill. The people of their social standing, the wealthy residents of the higher society, so on and so forth. So, like, the wealthy residents, the, you know, the higher society, the native Yankee Massachusettsians, that's... What do Massachusetts people call themselves? Like, you've got, like, Floridians for Florida and New Yorkers for New York. What is... What did Massachusetts people call themselves? So they, all the rich folk, effectively, they all lived up on the hill, you know, away from, like, the businesses and the textile mills and all that. And the Bordens, they still lived down at the bottom of the hill. And because of where they lived, a lot of the people in their neighbourhood and the surrounding neighbourhoods were immigrants. So you had lots of poor or working class immigrants, quite a lot of them like Catholic immigrants from like Portugal and Ireland and things like that. And they're all in this sort of the basin of the town effectively. So when Lizzie and Emma were growing up, there's things that should have happened with them because of their social standing was like they should have had like cotillions and coming out parties and in order for them to have worthy suitors and to be married off, you know, well. It's kind of the thing they did back then. Especially in the Victorian era, like, that's what women did. Especially high society women. They found husbands. But Andrew, he really wasn't interested in this. He wasn't into socialising. He wasn't into, you know, spending the money on, like, outfits for, like, balls and galas and doing all that kind of stuff. So the girls grew up fairly isolated and the majority of their social events revolved around their church. It's like that's where all their extracurriculars came from. So Lizzie, more so than Emma, becomes very involved in like, you know, all the stuff to do with the Central Congressional Church. And she is well involved. So like Lizzie, she's a part of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the Ladies' Fruit and Flower Mission. She's the Secretary Treasurer of like the Christian Endeavour Society. So Lizzie, she's like really involved in like church activities, organisations and events because that's the only social life these girls get. This is, this is it. Like Lizzie, for a good while Lizzie's even a Sunday school teacher because they have no other outlet, they have nowhere else to go and they're in this really weird position because, so the people in their social rank, they're not fraternising with them, they're not meeting with them because they're not, they're not really in that peer group. So they're like cut off from them. And, and the people that they live with, the working class immigrants that are surrounding them, like they're not their peers either. And so there's no real connection with them because let's face it, they're not going to trust this wealthy fucking family because like this wealthy family doesn't belong with them. Like they're not their peers. So the Borden sisters are, for the most part, ostracized from most facets of society. And, like, we don't know if Andrew was aware that he was doing this to his daughters or even if he knew but just didn't care 
or he was just so convinced of his own convictions that he just couldn't falter from that. Straight down the line, he had a plan, he wasn't going to deviate from it. Now, we do know that Lizzie managed to have, like, at least one friend, but even so. But for the most part, the sisters just had each other. Now, as you can guess, there's already quite a bit of tension in this household, and the shit really hits the fan when Abby's sister is about to be evicted. So, like, she half-owned her house, or she was, for whatever reason, she was going to be evicted, she was going to be homeless, she was going to be left with nothing, destitute, nada. And Andrew decides, all right, that's my wife's sister, I should probably step up to the plate. And Andrew buys half of the house, right? Makes sure she can't be evicted, sorts her out, right? And this really pisses the Borden sisters off because Andrew, the notorious penny pincher, who would not buy them a house, somewhere for them to live, allow them their own freedom, his own daughters, who were forced to live in a cold, creaky, dark, gloomy, crickety house with weird adjoining rooms and no running water, he goes off and buys his wife's sister a house. Now, to say they're mad is an understatement. They're fucking livid. Now, so in order to resolve the situation, Andrew sells them a house for a dollar. It's a rental property. It's like... It was his father's house and it was actually the first house that he and his first wife Sarah had lived in. But it's currently like a rental property and he gives it to the girls so that they can have it as like a rental income. So they can have it so they have their own income. But for the Borden sisters, it's not enough. That bridge has been burned and it's just not good enough. And I feel like the person who goes, hey... Here's the house your mother died in. Shouldn't really be up for any Father of the Year awards. Now, and it's after this event that Lizzie just flat out stops calling Abby mother and just starts calling her Mrs. Borden. Like, this is the person that for basically all her life, she has referred to as mother. And after this incident, and she's like disconnecting herself from this. And it's also from this point that the... So not only does Lizzie just stop calling her mother altogether, her and Emma just stop eating. Like, the family stops eating meals together. Like, they would avoid, like, being together and having to be in each other's company as much as possible. So Andrew and Abby, they would eat their meals together, and then Emma and Lizzie would eat their meals together. Like, they would avoid, sort of... I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. 
I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Being together. The Bordens were not the only people in the household. At some point over the next year, their maid Maggie leaves, and she is replaced with a 20-something-year-old Irish immigrant, Bridget Sullivan. So in 1888, Bridget joins the Borden household. Now, this wasn't Bridget's first rodeo because she had been a maid to you know, other wealthy people of the area. And and actually, when she was hired by the Bordens, it was kind of like a step down for her because quote-unquote unfashionable houses like she'd had to work in. But conveniently, the Borden house was like four streets over from like the Irish contingent in Falls River. So Bridget joins the household and everybody in the household, kind of xenophobic, apart from Abby, actually, So every single member of the Borden household calls Bridget Maggie, which I'm sure you can guess if you've been listening, is not her fucking name. Her name is Bridget. Maggie is the name of their old maid. So Emma, Lizzie, Andrew, they're all calling her Maggie, and Abby is the only one who calls her by her actual fucking name. So Bridget's really important, actually. The majority of what we know about the Borden household, we know because of Bridget's testimony. Like, kind of because she was one of the few people alive to tell the story, and two, she didn't really have anything to lose by talking about it. So 1890 rolls around. A month before her 30th birthday, Lizzie Borden embarked on a 19-week grand tour of Europe. Now, this was very much like a done thing at the time. Chaperoned, like, young men and women would travel to Europe. The ticket was effectively a birthday present from her father, which is nice because it shows he's not entirely clueless about the world. So like that was one of the two presents she received from her dad. The first being the ticket for the tour. And the second was a seal skin cape. Now this was very much the thing of the time, like they would be chaperoned young men and women, they would travel to Europe from the Americas. If you were an unmarried woman, the fuck were you travelling to Europe alone? That wasn't happening. That's just, that's a scandal waiting to happen. So Lizzie goes on her travels and she's joined with, Lizzie had four companions plus a chaperone for this trip. Two of the companions were her cousins, her boarding cousins, Carrie and Anna. The other two, um not sure they're definitely part of the same church group which is how these people sort of knew each other really spend time together and the only way they had known each other was via the central congregational church and their chaperone was a falls river high school teacher and see this trip lizzie was in her fucking element she loved this trip and she loved the fact that she got to live the high life as well as the fact that she got to travel and see places like she landed in liverpool we also know that she went to Ireland because she was in Blarney Castle. She was in Scotland, England, Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Monte Carlo and France. Like, like they did a full fucking trip. 
And we know that she got to so many places because she took, was it 168 photos? When she gets back from the trip, she like, and like she, she gets them developed and she puts them into these albums. Like she loved this. She loved gallivanting across Europe. She loved going to museums and art and seeing poetry and hymns and, and getting to enjoy this like fancy lifestyle that she felt she deserved because her cousins had it. Why shouldn't she? Because all of our travelling companions are like super fucking rich, they're incredibly wealthy, they're travelling first class, there is no expense spared. To the point that Lizzie actually has to like request extra money sent, she's like wire me some cash because <laughs> things are getting tough. But like Lizzie really fucking loved this. This was the highlight of her life. She just enjoyed this time. Like, she loved this trip so much that when she was travelling back to America, like, she was full of melancholy. Lizzie didn't want to go home. She didn't want to go back to Fall River and back to that cramped house at the bottom of the hill. And Lizzie tells her cousins that she's regretting going home because of the juxtaposition between how amazing and awesome this fucking trip was compared to how unhappy her home was and when she gets back from her trip she has like all these photos like but she took her photos and she had them developed and she had them put into two large photo albums and she would like show them off and she would tell people about them she was so happy and she was so happy when she like got to talk about her trip like she really loved this like she had a taste of what her life could be like also like when she got back she ends up changing rooms with Emma. So, like, Lizzie used to have, like, the smallest room, like, the darkest room in the house. And she ends up switching with Emma, so Emma ends up in the dark wee room. And she gets the slightly bigger one. So, in 1891, there's a burglary at the Borden house. And it happens in the middle of the day because, you know, in the past, people were too trustworthy. They would just leave their doors open. But seriously, lock your goddamn door. Like, I don't care who you are lock your door during the day at night also but but during the day too because people should not just be allowed to walk freely into your house without your consent so yeah there's a break-in and somebody makes away with like cash and jewelry unsurprisingly somebody broke into the boarding home thinking oh he's a rich fella i wonder if he's got any money at his house much to their credit he absolutely fucking did there was money in the house and there was jewelry so so yeah somebody broke in stole it fucked off and because, you know, they don't want to get fucking burgled again, the Bordens decide to lock all of the outside doors. Just to make sure that nobody breaks in and steals their shit again. So go forward a year, we're in 1892, and that's where all this shit goes down. So 32-year-old Lizzie, she decides if she can't have friends, she's gonna have pigeons. So Lizzie, she builds a roost for pigeons in her barn. So at some point, like May or June, her dad decides that he has to kill the pigeons because he's convinced that kids are gonna break in and try and hunt them because that is so much worse than him killing them. Now we do not know the exact method of aviary assassination. We do know that he somehow ripped their heads off. Whether he did this, I don't know, manually or used a tool of some kind. We just don't fucking know, alright? We don't know. All we know is that he killed some fucking pigeons for a shitty reason, if any reason at all. In July... 1892, there's this massive disagreement in the Borden household. 
what that disagreement was, we have no fucking clue. It is so bad that Lizzie and Emma say fuck this for a game of soldiers and get the hell out of Dodge. Both Emma and Lizzie go on a extended vacation. So they fuck off out of Fall River and they go all the way to New Bed. So they both leave and then Lizzie returns back to Fall River. But before going back to the family home, she actually rooms in a boarding house for a couple of days before heading back. Like, instead of going straight home after this trip, she's like, I'm just going to go stay in this house. Thanks. Okay. So she comes back. So she's back and Emma's still the fuck away. Visiting somebody who, we don't know. We know that she's easy to contact, but like... uh, So they left together, but Lizzie comes back alone without her, you know, mother figure for some unfathomable reason. So August rolls around and this may surprise some of you, but August in the summer is pretty bloody hot. There's a lot of chass around. On the 1st of August, the Bordens decide to eat some swordfish because apparently eating day-old tepid swordfish that has not been in any way refrigerated on a sweltering hot fucking day is a really good idea. So they all eat the swordfish. Mmm, room temperature seafood. Scrumptious. <laughs> you're gonna be you're gonna be shocked, but they all suffer food poisoning. Pretty bad food poisoning, right? It is coming out of both ends. They are just it's not good. Now let's bear in mind in this house in which all of the rooms are connected and there is only one working fucking toilet that there are at least four people who have absolutely no control over their sphincter or their gag reflex. Now, like in my head there's like two scenarios going on. It's either a battle royale to the water closet or everybody is just like bent over a bedpan and a bucket. Like, there's just... mm. So Abby... She's been sick. So Abby, she's been puking her guts up and probably chitting some out. So Abby's freaking out. It's coming out of her at both ends. But but she's convinced that she doesn't actually have food poisoning, but rather she's been poisoned. So she gets a doctor to come see her and check her over. And the doctor checks her out and stuff and he asks her questions. And then he goes, yeah, no, I don't think it's poison. I think it's more this old warm fish that you ate. Probably. What I find really funny is like when the doctor comes to visit and he checks out Abby and stuff, when he offers to like give Andrew Borden a once over, he's like, fucking no. Do not fucking touch me with your doctory hand. He gets like so mad and angry. He's like, I'm not sick. I'm fine. And he's like, when he's clearly like not fine because, mate, it's coming out of you at both ends. This is the time where you go, hey doc, help. Jesus, I mean, if there's ever a time where you are in fact ill, when all of the fluid and sustenance is exiting your body from every available orifice, you're sick. The next day, the family decide to eat some mutton stew. Because, you know, a thick, heavy stew is the best meal for the middle of summer. So they all eat this mutton stew and they all feel like shit again. Later that day, Lizzie goes to visit her friend, her only pal actually, Alice Russell. So she goes and visits her friend Alice and she's like, I'm really worried. I think someone's got it out for my father. 
you know, he's rich, he's got all this stuff. I think someone's trying to kill him. I think someone's got it out for him. And Alice is like, really? You sure? He just kind of owns a couple of mills, but all right. You do you, Lizzie, you do you. Pretty sure you're going to be okay. And it's also on this day that Lizzie's uncle, maternal uncle, John Vinicom Morse, comes to stay with the Bordens. He's there to meet with Andrew and discuss some sort of business stuff and money things. Manly, manly money things. So he's going to be staying in the guest room for a couple days. So the family and Bridget, they've all been eating this mutton stew again. And what I'm going to assume is complete shock and surprise for all of you, they get sick again and they all retire, okay? So that is Andrew, Abby, Lizzie and the uncle. And of course, Bridget the maid. They all eat this stew, they all feel like shit. Yeah, maybe don't eat unrefrigerated meat. I mean, it's not like they had refrigerators. And I doubt, like, Andrew Borden's going to be forking out for an icebox. You know I mean? He's not. I was like, it's fine. It's fine. So there's Abby Borden, Andrew Jackson Borden, Lizzie Borden, John Morse, and Bridget Sullivan. They all have the meat sweats and the mutton chucks. And they all retire for the night. And as they slumber, each person unaware that the events that are to follow the very next day will be a day of infamy in dark history. And that seems like a really good place to stop because there is so much information here, I have no choice but to like split it up. I hate doing two-parters, I hate not giving you the full story all at once, but this editing is, there was over, I had over two hours of audio and I'm very sorry. So I'm going to try and get the next episode edited and out as soon as possible. I don't want to make you wait another week for this. You have waited long enough, damn it. And while you're waiting for the next episode to come out, maybe just go on to Spotify or Apple and uh, rate and review five stars. I'm just saying it would be nice. That's all. Don't forget you can tweet me. You can DM me on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. You know, just, just say hi. It's all good. Anyway... I have editing to do, so I'm going to go now and I'm going to say adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Bye-bye. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.